God bless you. Good to see you all back here again this morning and it's a pleasure to be uh, sharing God's word with you again. Have your Bibles turned to Matthew chapter 5 with me this morning as we continue our look at, we've, we've been through the Beatitudes and we're continuing our, um, our, uh, our sermons or, or studying the Sermon on the Mount, as it's commonly called. And this morning we'll read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Let's read together. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word, and we thank you that you have preserved it for us. We might look into it and trust each and every word that it gives us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that he'd be guiding us into your truth and that our hearts would be prepared to receive that truth. Lord, that we might serve you more fully and be more faithful in everything that we do. We thank you once again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was younger, um, I reflect back on my life. I had a pretty good life. I didn't have a bad life when I was young. I had... A lot of loving family around me, and, and I grew up in a, with, with plenty of food. I never lacked any particular thing, and um, my parents worked pretty hard, and they, they provided for all of our needs. Um, and as I as I reflect back on my life as a as a teenager and as a, as a young person, I am more disheartened the more I think of it because I had so much. And my parents gave so much. When I think back at my, even my grandparents who would sacrifice so much just to give me something. And I was, yes, they gave it to, to everyone, but I received so much because of the sacrifice they made. I think of my grandmother and all the wonderful food that she used to cook for us. And I think of all the wonderful instruction and good times that my grandfather uh, uh, gave us. The instruction of my own father over a dinner table, my mum, and, uh, and those people that were around me that just were there to help me grow, were there to, to make sure that I'd have a good foundation in life and I'd be able to actually establish myself in this world and to be safe and to walk in a safe way. Did I know it then? Nah. Did I appreciate what they were doing for me then? When I, when I look at it now, I have to say I didn't appreciate it at all. In fact, I took it so much for granted that now I actually am ashamed. Because the number one priority in my life was not my family, but was for my, it was myself. And it wasn't until I had my own family. It wasn't until I gained more responsibilities and realised that I had a responsibility to help other people did I actually appreciate what was done for me. That's the way of life, isn't it? 
Oftentimes you look back at your life and you think, no, I could have done it better. I could have thought, thought it through a bit more. But when you're in the midst of it and, and you are the centre of your own world, nothing really else matters, matters does it? Until you realise there's a lot more to life than just living for yourself. Most times the most precious things that we have in our lives are right under our noses each and every day of our lives and we don't appreciate them. We take them fully for granted. And when I reflect back, I mean, I heard the gospel first when I was about 10 years old. Did not get saved until I was about 19 years old. I'd heard about Christ. I knew about him. I understood that he died on the cross. I understood a lot of the, the, the doctrine that, we, uh, that I even understand now. I didn't appreciate him. I took him completely for granted. Yeah, he'd done what he had to do and, and I was reaping the benefits or would have reaped the benefits if I'd given my heart to him. But I didn't appreciate him until much later on in my life. Didn't appreciate his love. Didn't appreciate the sacrifice that he made. Didn't appreciate who he was. Same thing for the word of God. Didn't appreciate the word of God until much later in my life. Even when I got saved, I didn't appreciate the word of God. I can't say that I did. Yeah, it was there. I had my, my Bible and everyone sort of, you know, had a Bible and I appreciated probably more the fellowship with other Christians than I did God's word. And as I've, as I've grown and matured, I appreciate now what God's word can actually do in people's lives. Same thing goes for church. Going to church, didn't appreciate church. Not until I actually stood behind this pulpit and began to realise how important each and every person is in the church and how, how, much, how many hurts and needs there are in the church. But how important church is because of what I learned in God's word. Did I begin, begin to appreciate it? Same thing with prayer. Same thing with the purity, with purity in my life. Same thing about running away from sin, not letting it taint you. And the list goes on and on. Sometimes we, and this is part of the growing process, isn't it? That we, so we take certain things for granted as we're younger, but we only appreciate them maybe later on because of the lessons God has prepared for us along the way. We do this. We're all guilty of, of not appreciating what we have or undervaluing something that's of, of immense worth. It's a bit like, um, I'm not sure if I've told you the story before, but I managed to lose my mother's engagement ring when I was very young. Who's heard this story before? Oh, good. How important is an engagement ring to a, to a, uh, a married woman? Very important. It's more expensive than your wedding ring. It, it's normally the one that holds the diamonds and, the, and all the other stuff that goes along with it. <laughs> when I was young, when I was very young, as in uh, possibly five years old or whatever it is, or possibly, yeah, even younger than that, I managed to get a hold of my mother's engagement ring. And I hid it somewhere in the house so that for at least ten years, it, wasn't, it didn't exist in the home. They lost it. It was lost. And then one day my father told me to vacuum the house. 
and he said to me, go, son, go and vacuum the house this morning because, you know, you're, we're busy doing other things. So, you know, being my typical self, foolish young boy that I was, I'd be playing around with the vacuum cleaner and doing things and, and then I'd, 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 at one stage I opened the door um, and there was, you know, the stopper, the rubber stopper? That's behind the door, that, that stops the door from hitting the actual wall. And I thought, I'm going to take that out and I, I, put, I took off the head and I actually put that in there thinking there was dust in there as well. That's how thorough I was. And I was so thorough that after I actually put the nozzle of the vacuum in the actual thing, after I'd taken off the actual rubber stopper, you know, the plastic bit that holds it, I thought I'd look inside. You know what I saw in there? A ring. I think I must have been about 14 years old. And I, I looked at that ring and I thought, could this be the famous ring that's gone missing? Is this like the sort of Excalibur <laughs> that, has, that, needs to be, that hasn't been, been retrieved for years and years? And I took it out and I thought, that's a pretty big ring. So the first thing I did is I ran to my father in the kitchen. And I said, Dad, is this Mum's engagement ring? And he said, nah, that's not it. <laughs> Didn't recognise it himself. <laughs> Typical male, honestly. So, the, so I thought, nah, this has to be it. And then he sort of looked at it, he goes, oh. So the first thing I did, my mum was with my brother at a guitar lesson down the road at the primary school, and I ran all the, I, I ran all the way to go and see her with that ring. I mean, this is the greatest discovery of a lifetime. I'd redeemed myself after all these years. And, uh, and she was quite happy. She was excited and ecstatic when she got that ring. I mean, when you think about something like that, you think you've lost it forever, and then all of a sudden it shows up again. But see, when I was young, I didn't appreciate that ring for her, did I? It was a play thing for me. It wasn't something important. It was, it, it was something that I could just play with, and I hit it, and I, I played with it. But that's the way that the world is sometimes. Some of the most important and really uh, uh, valuable things, we, we tend to th throw away and disregard them, and we focus on the mundane. That's a challenge for the Christians, that, that we actually, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have at church, the fellowship we have with each other. We don't appreciate God's word and time, time we spend in God's word and those things. And then we're allured by the things of the world because, they, you know, because they're so sweet and they, and they taste so nice. But it's like having lollies all the time and not appreciating a proper meal. And then when you, get, when you get stomach aches and things go wrong, you only appreciate the meal later. And this is a story of this particular passage that I want to tell you today. When it comes to the children of God, okay, I'm going to reverse this thing. When it comes to the children of God, the ambassadors of heaven, the citizens of the kingdom of God, are you and I appreciated in this world? We're not appreciated in the world. And, and, and there's almost a guarantee that we cannot be appreciated in this world. Who we are, what God has called us to be, cannot be appreciated by the people out there. There is no appreciation. But the beautiful thing about appreciation and your value and my worth and your worth is not, it's not found in the people of this world. The people of this world may see us as unworthy having no value at all to them, 
and being totally worthless in this world, the beautiful thing is that we don't find our, our, our worth and our value in the people in this world. We find our value in Jesus Christ. That's where I, I have my value. Because there is a particular passage that tells me how much he was willing to pay for me. That is my worth. That tells me how much I'm appreciated. And that spurs me on. It's that love of Christ which compels me to live the life that he's called me to live. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. First Corinthians 7.20 says, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Now, who did the calling? God did the calling. And, and, and Paul is saying, whatever you were, just continue what you were doing. Just continue that path, but abide in the calling that God has called you. And then in verse 21, he says, Art thou called being a servant? Were you called while you were a servant? Care not for it. Don't worry about changing it, doing it, whatever it is. But if thou mayest be free, use it rather. Use it rather for who? For the Lord. Verse 22. For he that is, that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man anyway. So even though in this world you may be a servant or even a slave, in God you are free. And Paul says, live as free. Then he says, likewise also he that is called, being free, you may be a free man, he says, is Christ's servant. And verse 23 says, Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. We are bought with a price. And that's what gives us our worth. Because when something is bought with an incredibly high price, it means the person who bought that item regards it as valuable. Now, I can't think of anything more expensive. I can't think of any higher price than the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself, as Paul says, for me. He paid the price for me. Didn't have to buy me. That was his choice, not mine. He made the choice to pay that price for me. I just said, thank you, I'm bored now. I'm yours. This sermon is about your worth in God. Your worth. And your value in Jesus Christ. And your worth is determined by God, what God was willing to pay for you. Some of us don't appreciate it. Some of us do not appreciate the price that was paid. And we take it for granted. And we take it for granted and we show we take it for granted by the lives that we live. And this passage today is a challenge for us to live that life. To realise who we are. First of all, and when you realise who you really are, then you have every possibility of fulfilling the vocation that you've been called to. Matthew's chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, 3 to 12, we saw the, what we call the Beatitudes. And the Lord says in verse 3 to 12, it says that the, the citizens of God's kingdom... In this world would be, and it lists them all, it says they would be poor in spirit. Remember we looked at that? Poor in spirit means that you weren't proud. That you realised you were a bit like the, um, 
like the the publican, Bible says, who, who, who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It says that they would mourn. They would mourn over their sin and, and for the sin in this world. That they would be meek. That they would hunger and thirst after righteousness. But that they would be merciful to other people as well. That they, that they would be pure in heart. That they would be the peacemakers of this world. These were the characteristics of the people who called themselves the citizens of heaven. And it speaks also about, it told us about the wonderful blessings that would occur for those who actually did call themselves citizens of heaven and who, who lived out these particular traits. Remember I said to you, these aren't traits that you can say, oh, I'll try to be merciful or I'll try to be meek, or I'll try to do something. No, these are the characteristics that should be inherent in every citizen or every person that calls themselves a child of God. But in the final beatitude, in verses 10 to 12, even though, even though the, the citizens of heaven are meek, they, they, they want to do what's right by hungering and thirst after righteousness, they're merciful, they're pure, they're peacemakers... There is an attitude that Jesus says the world will have towards you and I. Guaranteed. Regardless of how meek and humble and lowly and, and peacemaking you want to be, the Bible says and almost guarantees, look at verse 10 in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. And persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The world will revile and persecute those in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we do not fit the world. We do not fit the world. In fact, you can be as meek and lowly and loving and merciful and patient and kind and gentle as you want to be. But in this world, sometimes when you shine your light in this world, it exposes other people's sin. And people don't like to have their sin exposed and people don't like to be told the truth. So sometimes they, they persecute. They either run away from you or they will persecute you to cover their own shame. The world will persecute those who call themselves the children of God. And Jesus guaranteed it because just as they, they persecuted the prophets and the prophets were sent specifically by God to Israel and Israel, their own people, their own nation, killed them all, almost all. Because they simply were there to tell the truth. And the truth sometimes isn't nice to hear. And this is all about, that passage is about how the world influenced the children of God. The children of God would behave in a certain way, look a certain way, and this is what the world would do upon them, which is persecute them. But now Jesus, in the very next few verses, in verses 13 to 14, proceeds to describe the opposite what we are to be in this world, how we are to influence the world. So Jesus tells us, he starts off with, this is what the children of God are like. This is what the citizens of heaven are like. They look like this, right? And then he says, 
But if you live like this, you will be persecuted. But knowing that, knowing you will be persecuted, remember this, that you are the salt of this earth. You are the light of this world. That's what you need to keep in mind. Even though you're suffering persecution, even though you'll go through difficult times, even though no one will appreciate who you are, remember who you are. And that will make all the difference to the way you behave. Remember all those wonderful traits, being peaceful and, and, and meek, mild and all those things. They are the fruits of the plant that's been planted. We are, we are called not just to live these things in a cocoon. God did not create us to be meek, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to be merciful, to seek after righteousness in a cocoon. God called us to live these things in the world. So the challenge is, and Jesus is saying, I expect you to live like this, and, the, and then you might, but you're going to be persecuted. So, so then, the, then the thought comes to your mind is, all right, if I want to live like this, but I'm going to be persecuted, maybe what I'll do is I'll withdraw myself from the world and I'll live in a small community just with people who were like me so we appreciate each other. Isn't that what other people have done throughout the ages? Think about it. And they still do it. People have lived in monasteries because they thought to themselves, oh, people want to appreciate us out there. For us to be holy and live, and live righteously, we have to take ourselves away from the world. There are people called... Um, the Amish, who have separated themselves totally out of the world. There are a number of other groups. And the temptation, even for us, is when you, when you face the things of this world, you think to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be just so nice if we just moved away somewhere? Just if, you know, the, the family's here and we lived in like a, like a commune or something like that. You know, well, haven't you ever thought, has, has a thought ever crossed your mind or is it just me? Because sometimes you just want to go. You just want to leave. You get worn down by the things of this world, by the sin that you see around you. And you think, oh, it's just, sometimes it's so overwhelming. And the temptation is to run away from it. But Jesus, but Jesus is now telling us the opposite. Jesus is saying, don't go there. Don't think about that. You will be persecuted. But you know something? You are the salt of this world, of this earth. You are the light of the world. Wow. So live like that. Yes, you are going to suffer persecution. But this is what you've been called to be. This is who you are. And, and to deny who you are and run away and try and live by yourself with just the people that you get along with um, isn't what I've called you to do. So the Lord uses two well-understood terms that were used in his day. They were very popular, very easy to understand. Salt and light. Everyone understood those, uh, those things to illustrate the value of the kingdom citizen in this world. He uses salt and light from a candle to illustrate your worth to this world. And as, a, it was this, as if he was saying, yeah, you won't be admired in this world. You won't be the, the most courageous, successful. The, you know, people won't see you as, you know, as the be-all and end-all and just, you know, look at those Christians, how wonderful they are. They won't be admiring who you are. But even though your reputation may not be great, 
and our standards may not be the world's standards. You won't receive the applause of this world in your lifetime. God sees us as the salt of this earth and the light of the world. Let's start with the salt of the earth. Let's look at this. Matthew 5.13 says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. In Jesus' day, salt was seen as something of tremendous worth. You know, some, today you can buy a packet of salt for a, for a buck or something like that, for a dollar. It's not valued very highly. We produce so much of it um, and it's so easy to, to create that it's not valued very highly. It's the law of demand and, uh, and supply. And we use salt slightly differently today, although in many ways the same. But in Jesus' day, salt was so valuable that it was actually given to Roman soldiers as part of their wage or a wage. You think about that for a moment. Salt was so valuable in, in, in Jesus' day that it was given as a wage. Let me read something out to you. Have you heard of the term worth your salt? Okay, there's a reason for that. And it says that it means that you deserve the pay or reward that you get. For thousands of years, salt was highly prized. The 19th century expression comes from an ancient practice. The Roman army paid its soldiers partly in actual salt or in money to buy salt. Some say that they were paid in rations that were called sal, which means salt. And when money was substituted for these rations, they called it salarium. The word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which means salt money. If you were a loyal soldier, you were paid your worth in salt. So the word salary comes from the word salt. So we use the same term even today. Why were soldiers paid with salt? Well, because you can do a lot of good things with salt. It was very valuable and very, and very useful. Salt was a preserving agent. Okay, now you know, you guys all know that I come from an Italian background. We love our cured meats. We love our, our, our um, prosciuttos and all those things. And a prosciutto is simply a leg of, uh, of pork that's, that has salt rubbed around it and completely covers it. And it's just hung up like that. And the salt preserves the meat. It doesn't, it doesn't go off. It dries it. It takes out all the moisture from the meat and it stops any bacteria growing on the meat. Italians love their, uh, their cured meats. A lot of other food is, is saturated with brine or put in brine and preserved in that way as well. Salt is a preserver. Um, Before refrigeration, now we keep most of our food fresh because we put them in the fridge. The fridge brings the temperature of the food below four degrees. And at that, at that temperature, their scientists have worked out that bacteria finds it very hard to grow in low temperatures. So if there's any type of contamination on your food, it doesn't get a chance to multiply and, and make the food go off. That's how meat goes off. There may be some bacteria that's fallen on it. If the bacteria then is in the right condition, if it's warm enough, bacteria just begins to multiply and it's got a food source. And what, what happens is it causes the meat to go rancid, to go off. Okay? That's why we have fridges. But before fridges were around, the way they used to look after their food and preserve their food was salt. That was their refrigeration. That's why it was so important, because salt does essentially the same thing, although it adds 
uh, salt to the actual food every time it does it. Salt was used in sacrifices as well. Did you know that? Turn to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 with me. Leviticus 2, 13. It says, In every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the, the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Interesting, isn't it? So with all the offerings that you were to give the Lord, things that were burnt on the altar and, and the like, you had to do it with salt. Salt is also a flavour enhancer for food. So most foods that we enjoy even today, and especially in those days too, were seasoned with salt because it, caused, it causes the food to have a, a stronger flavour. actually brings out some of the flavours. And in some foods, never had a raw olive before? Anyone had a, eaten a raw olive? It's beautiful, isn't it? Aren't olives straight from the tree wonderful uh, taste? No, they're not. They're absolutely terrible. It's probably the most nasty thing you could eat. How they worked out that if you soak it in brine and you soak it in salt, that the salt actually takes away the bitterness from the actual uh, thing and actually infuses uh, the salt in it and gives it a, a nice flavour. I don't know how they worked it out, but I suppose through trial and error they did it. But the only reason you can actually eat olives is if they've been treated with salt. Otherwise, it's not a very nice taste. So salt actually takes away bitterness, it preserves food, it gives food more flavour, and it makes things more enjoyable. But what was Jesus talking about here? Was Jesus talking about the sacrifice? Was he talking about the preserving agent? Was he talking about what? Well, if you look at the actual context of that particular verse, it says, but if the salt have lost his savour... What's savour? Saltiness. If it's lost its saltiness, he's saying it's no good. Salt has the ability to give taste to something that's otherwise bland, that has no taste, that's not palatable at all. And Job mentions this ability in Job 6.6. He says in Job, Can that which is unsavoury be eaten without salt? Like that? Job in his day said, Can that which is unsavory, in other words, that hasn't got a good taste to it, be eaten with salt? Well, he's saying it as a rhetorical question. So he's actually saying that, No, you can't. You don't want to be eating food that doesn't taste nice if you don't put a pinch of salt in it. So when the Lord declares that ye are the salt of the earth, when the Lord says you are the salt of this earth, what's he saying? We're saying in very simple terms, when we looked at the worth of salt, saying that you <clears throat> may not be appreciated in this world, but God appreciates how much you're worth in this world because we add flavour to this world. We make what's an unpalatable place palatable. And maybe that's to God himself. You know, when you think about some of the some of the times when, when God was about to destroy cities, but just for a few people, he didn't. We make a difference in this world. 
Just like salt, we are useful beings. Useful. We have value. Like I said, we may not have value to them out there, but we have value to God. God knows our value in this world, even though it's not appreciated. You know, when you go and have your, um, your injections, who appreciates having an injection? Yes, Tegan. Injections aren't a, aren't a nice thing to have. You know, I, I, I hate and cringe every time I have to go and have a needle of some type and I and I'm very, get weak at the knees when they start pulling blood out of me with a needle. Do I appreciate it? Oh, really, I can't say I do. Do I appreciate the result? Yeah. But sometimes a needle has to be there. It has to be used in order to achieve the greater good, doesn't it? If you don't have the needle, you may die of a sickness or you may they not find out what's wrong with you. And in the same way, Christians aren't necessarily appreciated. We're seen as a bit prickly sometimes. We're seen as, as, as people who cause um, problems because we're there saying, hang on a sec, this is the truth. And people don't want to accept the truth, so we start to create a bit of a, uh, a problem. What was the Lord saying? The Lord saying that even though the world might not appreciate you, I appreciate you. I know what you're worth. We can be utilised and make a difference because inherent in our new nature is the ability to preserve truth. The ability to add flavour to this world, to make it palatable to a world corrupted by sin and decay. We are the ones that the Bible says that God uses to help preserve this world, to help reverse the decaying process. And we do it one person at a time. From God's point of view, the citizens of the kingdom of the world have a great flavour. But Jesus warns us about losing our flavour. There's a warning there. And it says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. How can salt lose its savour? Well, it can't. Actually, salt can never lose its flavour. You can actually put salt in a container, leave it there for a thousand years. After a thousand years, you can take a taste and it will taste exactly the same. Salt does not lose its flavour. But salt can become contaminated with other things. Salt can actually be contaminated with other minerals, which actually cause it to lose its, um, its ability to be able to preserve and give flavour. It can cause it to, to be it actually it can cause it to be to lose its effectiveness in that thing. And in a world filled with sin and deceit, it's possible for one to become contaminated with those things. So you're not effective or as effective in being able to be the flavour of the world, to be the preserving agent of the world. We need to keep ourselves from sin. It may also be a reference to the possibility of abandoning, and abandoning or deviating from the gospel. You know, if, if, you, if you lose the doctrine or you lose the power of the gospel in your life, you lose your ability to be the flower of this world. So it's all, it also means be strong with the truth. Don't, don't deviate from the truth left or right. What happens if a Christian loses his saltiness? Can he lose his saltiness completely? I mean, we've said salt doesn't lose its flavour. It can become contaminated, which makes it useless. 
What does it mean for them in the world? Well, if a Christian doesn't add flavour to the world, it's a bit like you know God buying a. Let's say God creates a, a particular thing, or you, you go and buy something like a car, and the car doesn't drive anymore. What will you do with it? I've seen a few cars out in the paddocks. The grass is growing around them. If a car doesn't do what a car's meant to do, the car is actually not much use other than being a car. So God, Jesus is saying exactly the same thing. God's called you, or God's created us to be the salt of this world. If we're not the salt of the world, Jesus is saying, well, what good are you? Well, they, they, don't, they don't appreciate you because it says there that, they, they, you know, that you might as well be thrown out in the streets and trampled on, which is what happened. They would use the bad salt to, to, throw, to throw out. You know, when you throw salt on the ground, what happens? Do, do plants grow there? No. So if you want to, to create an area where there's, no, where there's no growth at all, you throw salt down. It destroys the actual land and stops at things. So people use salt today, you know, on the roads where it gets icy? It, it lowers the... Um, it raises or lowers? One of those two. Uh, the, the melting temperature. It lowers the melting... It raises the melting temperature, sorry. And it actually um, it stops the roads from going icy. By the same token, you'd throw a, 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 a salt on a road or a path if you didn't want there to be plants growing on there so you've preserved the path. It'd be trampled underfoot. And that's what Jesus says we need to be careful of. Because if you lose your ability, if you don't do what you were created to do, you become useless. You become useless in this world and you become useless to God. And God says, you'll be, you'll be trampled on. You won't be appreciated at all. And this thing speaks of the usefulness of a Christian in this world. And if a Christian stops being the difference in this world, then his usefulness in this world is lost. This illustration is useful to challenge us to live as citizens of God's kingdom. But it shouldn't be taken too far. You shouldn't go too far with this particular thing either. It doesn't speak about salvation, but speaks about your usefulness. Therefore, your value in the world. It doesn't talk about, doesn't mean at all to lose your salvation. Because if you, agree, if you think that this thing is teaching about salvation and you can lose your salvation, then you can never be redeemed again. Because he says, how can you re-salt salt when it's lost its saltiness? It also says that will be, you'll be trodden underfoot by men. That's not judgment. Because it's the men who do the, who do the treading down, not God. There are a few other verses that we can look at that bring, it, bring us a bit more light. On this particular topic. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 50. And we won't get to the actual light part today, we'll just close with the soul. Mark chapter 9 verse 50 says, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? 
He says, have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Now, look, look at that verse. Now, keep in mind, do you remember the, the Beatitudes? Do you remember the things that, that Jesus listed that the citizens of the kingdom would have, the characteristics? If you look at it, he says to them, have salt within yourselves and dwell in peace with one another. What was one of the characteristics of the citizens of God's kingdom was to be peacemakers and to live in peace. Having salt within ourselves means that we are the peacemakers and that we can dwell in peace with each other. And the Bible says, and as much as it is within us, we can live with peace with those out there as well. Turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 with me. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Most of us know this verse, and it says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. A answer them what? What, what? what are we answering them? Well, it's about the hope that lies within us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the salvation which we have because of what he's done. So having salt within yourself and your speech season of salt means that you and I can share the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that's not arrogant or rude or, or, uh, or boastful, but is done with a spirit of meekness, gentleness and kindness in a way that people actually accept that message or can accept the message because the way we live, the way we speak is palatable to them. It comes back to the same traits that Jesus listed in the Beatitudes. We are called to be the salt of the earth and to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. This is a salt that brings flavour to this bland world. In a similar way, Jesus used the metaphor of, of light, which we'll look at next time we meet. But my message here this morning is, Jesus doesn't say... I want you to, to be the light of the world. I want you to try being the light of the world. I, I want you to, to train to be the light, or sorry, the, the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, I want you to try. I want you to test. I want you to. He doesn't say that, and that one day you will be. Actually, Jesus simply says, You are the salt of the earth. So that's our starting point. You are not trying to one day become the salt of the earth. The Bible simply says that we are. And the quicker we realise we are, the quicker we will actually will be what we are called to be. We will do what we are called to do. I've probably given this message a number of times in many different ways. I am of the opinion, and strongly of the opinion, that if you first do not realise who you are, you can never... Do the things that you were called to do. You can try doing all the things you were called to, to do in the Bible. In other words, try to be meek, try to be pure, try to be after righteousness, try to be a peacemaker. The world can do that, can't they? Can't they try to do those things? There are people in this world that try to be peacemakers. There are people in this world that try to be meek. 
There are people in this world that, that try a whole lot of different things that actually match up to what this, what this Bible says over here. The difference is, the Bible says, that we are these things. You are these things. And until you realise you are, you can never hope to fulfil those things. This is about identity more than anything else. When Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, he's not saying you're going to try to become salt of the earth. He says you are the salt. Now act like it. If you read through most of the letters of Paul, he says you are like this. Now do it. You are this. Now live it. This is who you are. And until we realise who we are, we can never fulfil what God has called us to be. So, does the world appreciate who you are? No, it won't. It can't see who you are. It cannot see who we are as people. But God sees who we are and God has an expectation because of who, because of who we are, because of our new identity, because we are in Christ, because we are citizens of God's kingdom, because we are the children of God, because we are the ambassadors to this world, because we are more than conquerors. All those things we are. We just have to believe it. It comes by faith. Believe it and you will do it. Let me close with a story. Over the years, there have been numerous theories and explanations offered up concerning the unique sound of a Stradivarius violin. And Stradivarius violins are meant to be the most beautiful sounding violins in the world. Everything from climatic effects on the wood, from the surrounding forest to secret moulding techniques employed by the master craftsman himself. One or more recent scientifically based explanation is found in the illustration below. Antonio Stradivarius, he was Italian, was an Italian violin maker who lived from 1644 to 1737. His violins are now the most prized violins ever made because of the rich and resonating sound they produce. The unique sound of a Stradivarius violin cannot be duplicated. Surprisingly, these precious instruments were not made from treasured pieces of wood, but instead were carved from discarded lumber. You like that? They, weren't, they didn't go out and choose the most expensive, best woods. He actually, he actually created them from discarded lumber. Stradivarius, who was very poor and could not afford fine materials like his contemporaries, got much of his wood from the dirty harbours where he lived. He would take those waterlogged pieces of wood to his shop, clean them up, and from those pieces of trashed lumber, he would create instruments of rare beauty. It has since been discovered that while the wood floated in those dirty harbours, microbes went into the wood and ate out the centre of those cells. This left just the fibrous infrastructure of the wood that created resonating chambers for the music. From wood that nobody wanted, Stradivarius produced violins that everyone wanted. Now, what's the application with that? The application is you and me. The world sees us as dirty pieces of wood. Nothing, nothing expensive, nothing worthwhile. But God was able to take us, right, those pieces of wood, and to create something beautiful in us. When you realise how much God treasures you and me, how much effort he's taking to actually produce a beautiful piece of artwork in your and my life, 
When you appreciate him, you'll begin to appreciate who he's called you to be and what you have to do. Because a violin, as beautiful as the Stradivarius and the sound that it creates, does not make is useless if it's not played. You can have it hanging up on a wall, and if no one ever hears the tune of the Stradivarius, what good is it in this world? But you and I were, were, were created to be played by the Master. God created us into beautiful works of art, and he's still working on us. He's still polishing us. He's still moulding us. He's still working on us. But you know something? The prize at the end, the actual result at the end is guaranteed. Just appreciate the journey for what it is. The world may not appreciate us, but your Father in heaven appreciates who you are. Remember I said to you I didn't appreciate my family as I was growing up? Appreciate who God is for you now. Appreciate what he's doing to you now. Appreciate the effort he's putting into you, the patience, the grace, the love, the mercy that God is pouring into your life right now. And expect to be doing wonderful things for God. Because God expects to be to you to use you like that. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Don.